This is the Employee Experience and Education Podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brandstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classrooms. On this episode, we'll speak with Dr. Kevin Burkopes, co-founder and CEO of XR Technologies. Today, Kevin will discuss the seemingly insurmountable task of finding and keeping quality math teachers, the balance between providing what's needed for a new teacher to be successful and not overwhelming them, and how a curriculum can actually fill immediate vacancies and serve as a long-term talent solution. All right, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to hear about how you and your team are, are disrupting the ecosystem of mathematics instruction in the U.S. and beyond. But before we get to that, do you mind talking a little bit about yourself, your experience, and why math has been such a focus for you? Yeah, sure. So my my career started not atypical, I think, than a lot of people. I was uh, a little bit early on a, on a bachelor's degree in mathematics, and one of the reasons I chose that to begin with was I, I come from two parents who, one was is um, an accountant and did a lot of uh, numbers were always a thing that were around, as you could imagine. The other was a teacher. So where I found the the middle child in between was uh, uh, mathematics and and teaching. I didn't necessarily think I was going to be a teacher right away. I think it kind of came to me at the uh, the end of my undergrad, and then I had seen a lot of models of people traveling uh, the country and, and getting an opportunity and. Um, did it on my own rather than joining a Teach for America or something like that. I ended up uh, living in about six different states and taught a bunch of different places, lots of different types of kids. Um, definitely wanted to learn a little more about what poverty really was and some of my questions about crime and um, the mixture of poverty and crime and the trauma that goes with it, but also just understanding social dynamics and, and uh, some of the things that I, I felt like I uh, maybe had a grasp on, but really didn't, as you typically are when you're 21. So that led to, uh, you know, a lot of learning about what the world and how the world, at least as I saw it, worked uh, by working through families and children and working with them um, in private charter schools, public schools, you name it. Um, and got a master's uh, as an updating sort of an approach of where I started to see this this place or this gap of things that I needed and wanted to, to think about, which was um, technology plays a huge role, but it doesn't necessarily play a huge role yet, as at that time was in the early 2000s with uh, human things that are predominantly human-fronted organizations or, or systems like education and healthcare, which I really care about. Um, PhD was similar. It was like furthering the idea that there is there's a way of thinking about things mathematically there's a way of thinking about things in, in, a, in a thought process through technology but the the idea of human systems like what is the process that technology could automate teaching was one of those that seemed like a lot of people like to call it an art and i was like okay well sure uh working with middle schoolers you know every day is uh, requires a certain type of disposition uh high schoolers elementary school whatever but there has to be process that is a part of that that makes people successful and that's kind of been the endeavor over the last uh going on 20 years is learning through my own uh, approaches in classrooms what the process of good teaching looks like uh what the process of good healthcare even looks like and what parts um can technology play in those 
so that the people that are choosing to do it for various reasons uh, have the opportunity to to scale themselves or do it better or find efficacy in that work, which uh, is really where we're we're at now is we're we're almost to the point where I could say as an entire team, we're obsessed with making the life of a teacher better. Um, because if we can really be obsessed with that, then the outcomes for our clients, be it states or schools, um, and for students in, in the, the process of learning, the outcome and the conduit for that is, is really happy teachers uh, who love their work and, and want to stay and, and be a part of that. Yeah. So what, what is it you do at XR Technologies? Can you describe that a little bit for me, please? Yeah. So we're, uh, we're a licensure organization and a curriculum company. Um, we train, develop, and uh, equip relatively novice teachers uh, who come from all various types of backgrounds uh, not necessarily a STEM background at all. And within 30 days, they can launch a blended learning mathematics classroom while they're in the academy. We take care of them, we train them, we develop their capacity at the end uh, of that experience. If they didn't have a bachelor's degree when they started, um, they can finish a bachelor's degree with our partnership with Purdue Global um, for a very, very economical uh, price. They can teach in any state that Indiana has reciprocity with, which is almost all of them. They are taken care of in a fundamentally different way. That's what we've found from sort of our, our long conversations with school clients is uh, they're hesitant to hire new teachers into new content domains or otherwise because the, these assistant principals don't have the time to manage and, and properly take care of those people. Um, so we manage that while they're at the schools. They work for, for their, our school partners um, and we, we train and develop them on a, a proprietary approach to to uh, mathematics, which is modularized mathematics. It's a, the idea that each individual part of um, the sequencing that, that students will be to learn a class like algebra. It's likely true that, you know, 30, 40, 50% sometimes is remediation of what's come before. People like to talk about mathematics as being foundationally stacked. Um, but if they don't need remediation, then they're spending all their uh, time on things they don't need. Or if they do, they're not remediating some of their, their earlier gaps and they just jump right into new curriculum or otherwise that they're not ready for. So in an effort to not waste people's times and to, you know, like I said, of being obsessed with the teacher experiences, personalization and feedback loops are important. And if we can get to and create, which we have, a software that um, really coordinates all of the different types of tools that make a really quality classroom experience for students. Um, but also personalizes it such that you get what you need when you need it, both in access to one-on-one -on -one tutoring or classroom experiences or uh, remediation modules that help you, you know, think through in a different way, you know, numbers and operations and, and things that uh, you may have missed in your your early academy work. Um, so we're we're really a, a training and development. We're a licensure company uh, that has our own software and uh, curriculum. And we're coming at the curriculum market from the bottom up. We're training people um, attached to a curriculum with the idea that that's a way that you can scale real expertise. Um, but it's also a way you can take on a market that has a lot of incumbents that they, they make textbooks. We, we ask schools, why doesn't your curriculum solve your talent problem? Yeah. What were their answers? I'm curious. Uh, a lot of times it's like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, they've never thought like I could choose a curriculum based on the idea that it will 
it will help me with an immediate vacancy problem, but also a long-term strategy for talent. You can imagine that if you choose a particular approach that's successful, which ours is, that if you're training people on that year over year, when they come into your organization through the licensure and, and transition to teaching that we offer, um, it's just a fundamentally different type of strategy than thinking that I have to at least choose a great expertise, you know, laden curriculum, and then I'll find people and bring them in. Um, that's what they've done for 20 years. And it hasn't really, maybe 30, maybe 150, really, it hasn't worked. Um, the reason it hasn't worked is the talent pipeline's completely dried up. Um, you know, nobody's choosing STEM as a teaching uh, endeavor, mathematics specifically, because if you have those quantitative reasoning skill sets, you can go work in so many different industries now. Um, why choose teaching unless it's, it, it, it's almost like we, we still, uh, with the old model are preaching martyrdom and, uh, I'd, I'd prefer that we don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. On the, on the XR Technologies website, it reads XR Technologies is a team of passionate educators, researchers, and entrepreneurs who create processes and technology to help school leaders deal with their math department hurdles. So one of those big hurdles is the idea of staffing, because in using your words, the idea of a teacher having that skill set working for what they receive compensation wise in a school doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. They can go be data analysts, be physicists, be whatever it is that it takes. So staffing is part of that. What are some other hurdles that you help school leaders to solve with XR technologies? If you kind of look at the list, which um, has been a lot of the research in both conversations with hundreds and thousands of school leaders, but also um, the list nationally of, of the research surveys, you're, you're going to find that teachers complain about certain things. Um, they do not complain. Actually, it's maybe number six on the list about uh, being paid enough. What they complain about is I've got seven platforms that I have to coordinate you know, because the school has bought this ed tech and this ed tech and this thing and this thing and my curriculum. And uh, they they often talk about grading uh, papers, making assessments, quizzes, those sorts of things. They talk about that there's no support for them. They don't have a way of triaging problems that arise um, because it's this closed door policy. So all of those things we take care of. If, if we train the individual for the school, uh, in our academy, within 30 days, they can launch a, a, a basically blended learning math program for their kids. And the private tutoring that's involved in that, that's involved and in, in, is automated. Um, the sequencing is automated. The process for getting personalization is automated. Supporting them in a, a tier one through Escalate sort of a model is there. And um, they can ask in sort of a stack overflow way, or they can ask questions to our directly to our people you know, this is, a, I'm getting ready to do this. I, I don't feel comfortable with it. What, what could I do to make it better? That type of support, that type of uh, coordinating of all the platforms, there's one sign on and, and uh, that's all you really have to coordinate with, with your students. Removing a lot of those sort of mundane burdens is, is part of solving this problem. And uh, the, the real goal is where do we put expertise when we're putting it into a classroom, you, you sort of have historical choices, right? You have like, a, if I have a great curriculum, that hasn't really helped teachers. What it means is that there's a curriculum that's standards aligned and uh, it's got some expertise, sometimes really, really high expertise in it. But to actually enact it and execute it uh, requires a significant amount of expertise from the practitioner. 
Um, so enacted versus intended means there's a gap. And we think building the expertise into the process and the curriculum and the support is is where our value comes in for schools. Mm-hmm. So what what what'll happen if schools don't figure out solutions for this? If there aren't providers for you, because we already know staffing numbers aren't there. The number of college enrollees has dropped significantly, at least 33% in the last several of years. What does math, what does STEM instruction look like in the future if we don't have teachers like that? Well, I, I think you're seeing it right now, and it's probably been ongoing for the last decade. It's just been quiet. The minimum viable product, unfortunately, for schools is having a warm body in the classroom, an adult that's somewhat in charge of, of kids. Um, and then you hope that they can do a good mathematics program, that they can work with kids effectively, they can communicate with parents, among other things. Uh, you're going to see that the minimum viable product for who's in the classroom will continue to dwindle in expertise. Um, they're really just people that are really nice people that could probably do all right in a classroom, but they have no expertise on what we now know through cognitive science and other things is is how you develop mathematical uh, capabilities. And the same thing with literacy and other content domains. You're, you're just going to see a watered down um you know, traditional approach to learning when we have available to us some of the highest tech uh, open source tools out there uh, where people can learn literally anything they want on YouTube, among other things. And then they're going to go to a a classroom where the experience, the user experience is so bad that they're going to start to be, you know, um, disillusioned with with the learning. That's that's a really bad thing for society, uh, as I see it. So I know one solution that school leaders have tried is a grow your own type of a program. We reach into the community. Uh, you find, you recruit, retrain teachers from the community. Is what you're doing similar to a grow your own? How, how what's your differentiation there? Yeah, we, we manage grow your own programs for the school. So the breakdown, if you read a lot of the literature of, of a grow your own program is that the school has to manage it, which means they have to be good at marketing. They have to be good at training. They have to have the expertise in-house to do all of these things that, uh, frankly, school leaders probably don't have. Um, that's a big that's a big problem. Now, I'm not saying they can't learn, uh, but the average turnover for school leaders is just as high as the average turnover for teachers. So as soon as you get a girl your own off, off the ground, the person that was in charge of it may go to a different district. And, and so they fall apart. Um, we manage that for schools. We... We look very easily within their own organization and community for people that they already have hired who are great candidates, um, paraprofessionals, people that need just a few credits to finish a bachelor's degree but are already doing push-in interventions and other things, Uh, people that teach content domains that are a little bit easier to find and may want a more uh, robust teaching, you know, uh, degree or, or licensure not to disparage those other content domains, but most school leaders we talk to is like, I can find social studies teachers, but I cannot find math. And I'm like, well, if you can find social studies teachers and you like the ones you have, let's make math teachers out of them. Um, you know, that, that sort of an approach is, is available at every school. So they, they have the people. We have the process for Grow Your Own uh, with state funding and otherwise. It actually doesn't cost schools hardly anything. Um, because the state needs and knows that this talent pipeline is is drying up, and they need innovative solutions, so they they've gone out and, and spent um, you know their funding on on groups like us to to solve the problem. 
Yeah. So you mentioned Perez being one prime candidate for, for people that enroll, end up getting their bachelor's. Who, who else is a good candidate for this? I know in Indiana, for example, there are about three quarters of a million people that have started their bachelor's but haven't finished it yet. Those people are out in the community possibly looking for jobs. Are those good candidates? Absolutely. Yeah. If you're if you think about it as if you change the martyrdom paradigm that I was talking about earlier, then education's a great place. It's a publicly funded um, career path that is a great place for people that are exactly who you're describing. It's a, a vertical trajectory for them. If you don't have a bachelor's, but you're somewhere close, maybe you finished a year or two in, um, you can start working in Indiana or many of the states that we're moving into under an emergency license, and you have about three years to finish these credentials. So that person is getting fundamentally a different offer. Um, choose education because it's going to improve your own career trajectory really hasn't been talked about, right? It's like, how do we find people that are engineers at Lilly that are going to come and work in a you know a high school classroom? It's like, why would they do that unless you preach the martyrdom thing? Uh, and that does work, just not at scale. And so we're, we're thinking, well, what could we incentivize? What group of people could we incentivize through real human incentives to join the teaching workforce who maybe never thought it was a place that they wanted to go? If you get three years out of those people, you're really winning nationally as far as, as a consistent uh, grow your own program. And at the end, they have uh, a bachelor's finished. They get a, a, you know, a bachelor's in science from Purdue Global. They get a nationally recognized licensure for uh, being able to teach mathematics in a, you know, a high tech way and other types of credentials that can be attached to that. Um, you know, we're, we're even beta testing and working through what if in the third year of teaching, you joined, um, you know, a pathway where, you know, Cook Medical would give you an offer at the end of your third year to go join their organization. Um, now you're getting a real opportunity where industry can fundamentally shift the incentive for joining the education workforce. They want to do it um, because they want the education in their local communities to be good because that's where their employee employees come from. Um, it's it's a way that with actual outcomes and incentives you can you can see how people would go. Okay. I never thought I was going to be a teacher, but this means I could actually finish my bachelor's for less than 10 grand, work full time with benefits and a salary the entire time and come out way ahead than where I started just a few years before. Yeah. And that's interesting. So what I heard you say there is three years. If you can retain this teacher for three years, that's a win for a variety of reasons. One, yeah, you have more than a warm body, right? And you even mentioned that the quality of those warm bodies perhaps is dropping over the course of time. But there's also this excitement of, you know, maybe I'll stay a teacher, maybe I'll move on to something else. But you have three years with somebody who was high quality math instructor filling a position that you couldn't fill in the past. So three years might not be, oh my gosh, I lost this person after three years. It might be, we kept this person for three years. Yeah, I think we really need to start talking that way is uh, the national average for people that, um, joined a school of ed to become a math teacher, only about half of them ever make it in the classroom. And then about 100% of them are out of the profession after three to five years. So you've, you've got that happening right now in real time. If we can make sure uh, that in year one, they are doing really quality work, 
getting three years out of an individual with that type of high level performance, I think we're we're sort of crushing any metric for improving education that we could ever dream up. Yeah, and it's not a failure at that point. It's a win. That's a that's a huge success. Yeah, and offering that as an incentive for everybody is I mean, human beings don't behave in ways where uh, you know, we, we preach the, the martyrdom among other things. It's the truth is they're going to choose things that are good for them, we hope. Um and this is a real incentive that actually is good for them and gets us a really quality person in the classroom with every kid. Yeah. So with this being a podcast about the employee experience in education, I want to focus on that for a little bit. So many, I would probably say most current teachers are having a really hard time, right? The difficulty of being an educator is everywhere. And that's shown by the statistics about teacher satisfaction, number of teachers that are leaving the classroom. Two primary reasons, and you, you've talked about this already, is one, there's too much being asked of our teachers. Too much is being added to the plates. Very little ever gets taken away. And they don't feel like they have enough support. So how, how do you think about the balance between providing what's needed for a new teacher to be successful and then not overwhelming them with, here are a thousand things for you to do? Yeah, that's that's been a lot of the product creation. Um, one, we, we ran math departments for schools for the last several years. Um, the reason we did that as an outsourcing solution was, uh, one, it's it's a, a really interesting model where we, we got 20, 25 schools that uh, were outsourcing either part or all of their department to us, which is somewhat unheard of nationally. If you think about it in a long-term strategy, what we were really trying to figure out was what I really talked about at the very beginning. Uh, in the introduction is what is the process of teaching and what parts can be automated and uh, what what parts are mundane right what parts are things where software and and um, and process can can really remove a lot of the burden that the teachers complain about rightfully so there are processes of, of teaching like um, coordinating a bunch of different platforms and making sure that kids can sign into this and sign into that and use you know these different things that can be automated and there's great precedence uh, for how to do that. Grading papers. Why do we have people grading papers? Like I, for the life of me, cannot figure out what, what is the functional reason that you would have a bachelor's person who is perfectly capable of managing classrooms full of kids, which is quite a, quite a talent. They're, they're grading sub in sort of completely subjective ways, papers. Um, and then not using that data at all because all of the time is being basically processed up and in, in going one through 25 in 135 kids' papers. So we've automated that. Um, we, we do not believe that they should ever be making tests, quizzes, or otherwise because digital software, as far as adaptive learning software, has gotten really mature. Um, when you use it effectively, that means that you understand that you can't just plug kids in for five hours a week into a platform uh, because they they get fatigue after about an hour and a half of platform usage. So what are you going to do with the next three and a half hours of your class time? Um, if you just keep plugging them in, the productivity scale goes down really fast. And you can see that in a ton of research. So we give them a playlist of how to use that time effectively, how to understand that all of the data is being fed into a platform, your job becomes managing what kids really need, uh, removes a lot of the burdens of mundane. If we can get to a place where we say, what are the mundane things um, that teachers do day in and day out, and we get rid of those, people really like the job um, and are much more successful. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's 
So I, I'm assuming that a lot of public school districts, they try to do a lot with processes like that, but they're not at the point where they say those mundane things are all automated. It's we try when we can. On your website, you talk about how you can get teachers up and running in 30 days. So that goes from you know ramping up, having no experience to ramping up, being able to provide quality instruction, manage the students and so on. What, what happens in that 30 days and what are some takeaways from the, that of your process that people can take that maybe don't work for you? Obviously, the teachers aren't for you. They're doing their own induction and boarding programs. How do you scale up so quickly? It's it's been part of the learning of what is what is the the first thirty days. What does it really have to include for somebody to launch a blended learning math classroom? Um, they have to experience what students experience. That's one of the things that we've learned. So they, they need to understand like what it feels like to be introduced to this completely different way of doing learning. Um, they have to be comfortable with the, the platforms and the technology that we use. So you have to get them sort of really quickly enmeshed with this is the process, right? So we, we already have outcomes that say, if you follow the model of what we're teaching you to do, you're going to have lots of success. Kids are learning at really high rates. If you're going to go in and try to do sort of a hodgepodge, you know, hybrid thing, uh, you're missing the point of, of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, we we think that people that aren't great um, candidates for this type of approach is somebody that has kind of been autonomous for the last 20 years and taught in their own way, because then you'll gravitate towards sort of the traditional approach to, to what teaching is to you, which often is standing in front of kids and talking at them. Um, that is a hundred percent not going to work, and we 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 don't want lecture to be a part of the universal instruction because the differentiation required uh, in most typical classrooms is so wide that universal instruction is is somewhat obsolete in that context. There's great places that you can apply that, but you can do universal instruction in uh, in a way where you're teaching really helpful mindsets for learning, like mathematical mindsets, growth mindset, these sorts of things. Those are universally um, instruction opportunities. But if you're teaching content, the only reason that you would lecture is because it feels good to you as the adult in the room while kids are, uh, you know, sort of sitting on their hands and listening to you. I'd, functionally, you can't convince me that that's, that's uh, a really high quality learning environment. That's that 30 days. It's like a, it, it's, really sampled from a lot of different platforms, you know, that are out there. Like, how do you, how do you get somebody to be a Salesforce representative uh, at a company really quickly? Well, they have to know the platform inside and out. And then they have to know that there's going to be a sprint here, but the learning doesn't stop when you launch. So the idea of continuous improvement is, is what your first year is all about. Um, what you knew six weeks ago, hopefully is obsolete because you're continuously learning and adapting and just in time sorts of ways, getting a lot of new information about how to be thoughtful about, you know, approaching the growth of, of, uh, of kids. Yeah. What, what about ongoing support? How do you continue to support your teachers? Cause the first 30 days, you know, there's this primer, there's a sprint, and then they're introduced to the classroom. They're introduced to what their day-to-day -day looks like. How do you provide that ongoing support for your teachers? So feedback loop is really important to us in customer service as far as the obsession with the teacher experience. If you're not thinking about customer service in the way that a lot of other organizations do, right, like you want to talk to a person sometimes. Um, 
the availability for, for people that are doing software, like Stack Overflow is a huge resource. People get on there and ask all sorts of questions about a JavaScript library. And there's just miles of information that you can gather and then use. Um, so we have an, an internal system that, that sort of is a reservoir of, of almost frequently asked questions. Um, we gamify it so that people are constantly con contributing to that community. And the reason we do that is that we want as quick of a feedback loop as possible for teachers that have questions about what they're doing. Um, we we want to think about it in terms of a tier one through Escalate support uh, that you would see, you know, almost in a, in a call center sort of research way. It's like, how many how many people do we need to answer this many teachers' questions? Uh, and then how many PhDs or master's level people do we need in our academy that can sample space what kinds of responses those people are getting to ensure quality? Um, we can't have a bottleneck of, of feedback coming from just one you know, uh, person because as we continue to scale, it's, it's the bottleneck that every university runs into too as well. Yeah, interesting. What does that data look like for your teachers? Because I, I know student data, you know, we measure their progress, their achievement, which of those cores of math are they doing well, not doing well? What kind of data do you collect about the teacher experience? Lot, lots of different types. So there's lots of things. Um, we have all of our academy members that are in Slack. So we pay really close attention to what they're saying in the different channels that they're involved in. Um, their data, as far as student growth, among other things, are being paid attention to by the people that they work with in the academy as a part of, of thinking about, are they deploying the model? Are they being successful? You can see pretty easily in the data those that are doing well uh, because the projected versus actual of their students is um, either on on pace or a, you know ahead of pace. So you have those sorts of things. Um, you have surveys, of course, we care. Uh, the way that the Gates Foundation research came back is that you, you need to ask uh, teachers how they're feeling, how their how their work is going, uh, and it has to be re relatively repeated feedback. And then you got to ask students. You've got to get a, an understanding of students and their their so somewhat happiness with the programming. And then you've got to pay attention to what all the research says, which is kids are sometimes mad because it's hard and uh, it's really working, but they don't like it. Uh, so you got to like sort through that in, in in effective ways to understand that student feedback is important um, about teacher efficacy, but it's really important if you filter it through a lens of, uh, kids are sometimes just going to be frustrated with you because you're making them do hard stuff. Uh, if that makes sense. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the student data isn't always the most accurate in terms of, cause it's perspective, right? It's not necessarily this person is setting me up for success. It's, I don't like the way this person talks or whatever it is. So yeah being able to balance that data with, with uh, the other data points. So based on your experience, Kevin, where, where do new teachers struggle the most? And then what specifically have you been able to do to support new teachers? Again, this is about the employee experience in education. We're going to have public private schools from all over listening to this. What have you noticed about those biggest struggles for new teachers? And then what exactly do you do? Well, they've been trained for, you know, if they're coming out of a university, they're young, uh, and experiential wise with working with kids is really low. So they, they don't have a lot of experience, um, understanding that or understanding this phrase. I, we as a company consistently tell our candidates that are in our academy that it's about embracing the yet. I, I've been saying my whole career, um, kids are all sorts of not yets. 
And if you sort of understand that, then you can understand the approach to working with them. Uh, classroom management is a real thing. It's really important uh, because if you don't have in one way, shape or form control of the classroom, then no learning is going to go on there effectively. That just is an untenable outcome. So there's a lot of struggles with that. And we, we definitely have a lot of support for what it means to run an effective classroom. There's not a lot of downtime where you're kind of trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do because you you have a playlist that's set up for you uh, to understand the entire you know sequencing of, of your um, your program. I think the other things are you're, you're going to find that that classroom teachers are expected to do not just a hard job in a traditional setting, but an impossible one. Um, I really do believe that's true. We're, we're asking them to work with and be a mentor, parent, coach, you name it, uh, with young people, sometimes up to 135 of them, and then also really teach math really well, which means they're they're having to coordinate uh, what that means. Their traditional training on what it means to teach math means they took a, a myriad of math courses that were above the content that they took or that they're teaching. They've never really learned uh, effectively what it means to to teach kids that are struggling with multiplying fractions. Like that's a real thing. Uh, it's a real skill set that you can be taught and can learn. A lot of teachers go out and they're just like, you know, uh, I'm two weeks ahead in my textbook uh, from, from where my kids are and trying to like stay up with that pace while still dealing with the fact that uh, uh, humanity is, um, especially our kids in, in mass as teachers run into them is, is always going to be tough. You kind of build all of those together and, and then have like grading, uh, assessments, all of these things heaped on them. They're going to fail. They're going to wash out and they're going to start to ask themselves very quickly either I can't do this or am I really good enough to do this? Or maybe there's something else I can do with my career. You get those sort of seated in a, an early teacher and you're going to lose them. Um, and we're going through it right now. We saw a wave of quitting at the very beginning of the year because the schools were bringing in relatively novice people who within 30 days, they're like, nope, I'm out. You know, they've been told one too many times by a kid to some diverse way of, of being cursed out. Uh, and then you're going to see another wave right now in October and November where people have stuck it out for 90 days or so. And they're just like, I can't, I can't do this. That cycle is because our minimum viable is putting people in that are ill-equipped to do the job uh, without the right supports who could be real talent um, but they're they'll wash out because schools are overburdened with trying to do too much um, you know personnel in HR they're they're used to or maybe think that that isn't what their expertise is but it's absolutely uh, essential yeah, it's too much. It's too much for a lot of people. And they recognize that, and especially now with this work environment where so many jobs are work from home or remote or hybrid, and they can choose their schedules if people wake up and realize what they're doing on a daily basis. If they give that a, a real hard think and thought about it, they choose to do something else. And it makes sense because there's, there are so many burdens that are placed on teachers. You said that word a couple of times now. I think that's spot on. There are just so many burdens that are placed on teachers so many things that get in the way of them and the students. And that's why so many people are choosing to leave right now. I think so. And it's sad uh, because they could be really quality, but it's sad in a different way. 
um, and this may resonate with with folks that are listening, is uh, about 75% of the turnover that happens in teaching happens in about 25% of the schools. So the ones that experience the most turnover are the ones that need consistency the most. They're dealing with all sorts of things that poverty and trauma uh, bring, you know, in terms of complexity to a classroom. You need you need consistency there. And the schools that we work with sometimes, um, their entire teaching staff, they suffer from around 70% turnover. Um, you cannot build a school and a learning environment when you lose, you know, three out of every four of your teachers every year. Um, and it's, it's inequitable in such a, a profound way because that really only happens in schools that serve predominantly low-resourced kids. Um, the other schools can in an incentive way they can they can recruit or what i say is they they rob from each other right uh if you're in the bottom of the totem pole and you're a private school that can't pay very much or you're a school that serves predominantly low resource kids that has a higher level of um you know social dynamics that you as an educator would have to deal with you basically are losing your entire team every year year over year um and it's not you as a school leader that's making, uh, you know, bad decisions or, or anything else as to why your school isn't thriving. It's that you, you, you're replacing your entire starting lineup every year. Uh, I don't, I don't know any, any sport metaphor that you can think of where they get a brand new starting lineup every year and they're successful. Yeah. I'm a Chicago bears fan. They have 50, 60% turnover this year and they're not any good. Although that's, that's par for the course for my bears, unfortunately. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, you, you get the, the one and done sort of college basketball uh, where you have like the, the the all-stars who are just doing their one year, but that's not what these schools have. They don't have these just, you know, tremendous MacArthur level uh, teachers that come in and then, and then leave after a year. Uh, that's just not reality. The reality is that they probably are choosing sometimes reluctantly uh, and making concessions either in the ability to deal with kids or the ability to understand and teach content. Uh, and then those people are turning over year over year over year and um, not, not being successful is, is directly correlated to that. And it really is a big deal because what I just said is happening in all of these schools and they're spending millions of dollars every year um, and public funding on an operation that fundamentally can't work. Uh, it'll, it'll fall short for both the professionals there and the kids that deserve um, access to, you know, equitable ed. Relationships and the consistency there. So Kevin, what, what is one action or strategy that you hope every school leader listening today can take back to their own buildings and apply to make a positive employee experience in their building? Yeah, I think the, it's the idea of where expertise can come into play. Um, we hear from a lot of school leaders where they say, well, we count on our math teachers to be the ones that choose curriculum, choose programming, these things, because they're the experts when it comes to that. I hear that about science, STEM, ELA, you name it. If you look at your own program um, and the turnover that you have, the expertise of who's designing those things is often leaving at, at a pace that means you're you sort of have a failing proposition when you're you're thinking that way. So when when you think about a grow your own program and the way we're designed, the idea is that you don't have to go looking for that expertise. We bring in a research backed approach. You're growing your own 
uh, talent right on the program that you've decided is a good one for your kids. So everyone that's coming in is becoming sort of a launch play expert in what you want them uh, to do for your students. Uh, I think thinking about that in terms of how other content domains and otherwise can be functionally built uh, is really important because the expertise that sits in both the um, the CFO role at schools is dwindling, the school leaders' expertise is dwindling because a lot of people are turning out. There's not 20-year veterans the way you would hope that have a lot of what some people like to call tribal knowledge about how things work. Classroom teachers, same problem. So expertise as an outsource to a, a program like ours makes sense. Um, I think the other sort of really interesting thing to think about when it comes to as a school leader and, and what you can accomplish um, and what functionally it takes to turn something around, there there is great data if you understand the data that says that if, if your students are typically three to five years behind, that uh, the growth metrics that your your board is voting on as far as what they want to see out of you means you basically have to win the Super Bowl every year with a high school team. Like it's it's impossible. Um, what we've shown schools is, okay, it's, it's great to have stretch goals. We understand that as an organization. Uh, I'm the type of leader who constantly says nothing is good enough. Uh, hopefully I do that in a thoughtful way. Um, as, as far as continuous improvement, I'll let you, uh, ask my teammates if they believe that's true. But, uh, you know, you, you've got to understand pragmatically that the data says that you're going to need to have 60, 70% growth of your students year over year for the next three to five years before you've fixed your problem. Um, if you want to get out of that five to 7% pass for I learn, uh, score range, that's the type of work that's ahead of you. And, you cannot buy your way out of it. There's no smoking gun here that's going to fix it in a year. Uh, it's a process. And sort of investing in a strategy that is both immediate fix, which means you're, you're filling vacancies with high-quality people, but a long-term fix in the way that we describe it uh, makes a ton of sense and relieves a lot of the burden of stress that these really talented people put on themselves um, because they really don't think about the idea, well, we're going to have, I mean, you read this in the, in the turnaround school um, articles that come out in Chalkbeat and everything else. They're like, well, we're going to have 80% passing uh, after our second year of launching, even though year over year for the last 10 years, kids have passed at a five to 7% rate. He's like, that's actually impossible. Uh, and if you put an impossible task in front of professionals, um, unless you're preaching martyrdom, they're, they're going to leave uh, at, and you aren't going to get uh, a process towards, you know, continuous improvement that you really want. What is, uh, what's one celebration you want to share with our guests? Oh man, we have a lot of those. I think, I think the, there's a, a really neat um, situation that we have. Uh, and this is another point that I wanted to make before is school leaders need to start thinking about utility players. So fractionally you have math, science, you know, maybe one teacher is teaching all of those preps. You can train them to be a utility player for you. I've long thought that a dual license in special ed and mathematics would be the most valuable employee that a school leader could find because when you need a math teacher, um, you've got math teachers. When you need a special ed teacher, which everyone needs, then you, you have a utility player that you can pull over. That utility is so somewhat missing in the paradigm out there, and it's, it's something that we do. 
Uh, for example, one of our interesting wins is we had a, a, a principal. So uh, a private school in Fort Wayne had some vacancies. Um, they've got good enrollment. They've got good, consistent, you know, uh, student populations, but they were losing math teachers, you know, year over year to the public districts because they could pay almost a standard deviation less uh, in terms of their budgets. So she she took it upon herself. She's like, well, I've got paraprofessionals that I can bring into this and I'll make math teachers out of them because I love them. And the fact that they could be licensed and, and um, you know, as, as part of their teaching. But she chose to be licensed as a teacher, as a math teacher. She said, I'm now, as a school leader, a true utility player. If I can run this school, but I can be trained on how to do this, because then inside, when I need it, I know I can effectively step into a, a mathematics classroom and do great work, should I have to. Um, and that was one of those things where it was, it was a... It was a validation, and she's been a great uh, part of our academy. She's fantastic, um, and the you know the the program launch and everything else has gone so well at that school because she's sort of thinking of herself as as a utility uh, for her whole school population. That's a highly motivated person that's learning a lot about the fidelity of implementation of a program that you couldn't get uh, you know necessarily elsewhere. That that's promising um, in a lot of ways for what we want to scale, which is kids deserve to have access to really high quality um, programming uh, equitably. And I think we're onto something. Yeah. So Kevin, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way of them doing that? So our website's the best place to go um, as far as the various parts of, you know, I, I'm, I've got a pretty decent following on, on social media and LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, and, um, Facebook, among otherwise personally, but the, the, the program in the academy is is to go to the website. We can really communicate a lot through that that sort of an experience. And as we continue to to work on our rebrand and marketing and everything else as we go national with this, that's one of our most important things is how do people learn about this as, a, as an option for them, um, both through the school, but also otherwise. And it takes about 10 minutes, honestly, when we th- when we talk to schools now, they're they're somewhat like. Oh, this, where do I sign up? You know, uh, which is the product market fit that you've always wanted. And it also means that you've got, you've got things so well uh, designed and delivered that it really provides a lot of value for these people that we, you know, uh, we think are doing tremendous work, but need help. And solving a real problem that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Well, Kevin, thanks for your time today. It's been awesome to to connect with you again and learn more about XR Technologies. I'll include links in the show notes as well for everybody listening. Yeah, anytime, Eric. It's always good to hang out with you. All right. Appreciate you. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience and Education Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks and have a wonderful day. Thanks.